Welcome to the How I Became podcast, all about entrepreneurship. Hey, Max. Hey, Kelly. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Excited to have a chat about all of your knowledge on the VC space and getting founders up and running. Easiest place, I think, to start is just a quick background on yourself, who you are, what you do, what excites you, all the good stuff. Totally, totally. Well, firstly, thank you for having me. Really excited to be part of the you know launch of how I became. I guess for starters, yeah, I'm Max Donsky. I'm an investor on the Impression Ventures team. We are a fintech venture capital firm that really helps you know back bold founders who are trying to disrupt anything in the financial services or fi financial technology sector. This could range from payments to insurance to lending. Really anything that touches financial transactions or back office processes is what gets us excited. On a personal front, you know, I come from the insurance space. My career started as an underwriter and then I quickly switched gears to my first experience working at a startup where I was one of the early hires at Zensurance, which is a digital insure tech that sells small to medium sized businesses, commercial insurance. They were acquired by Travelers Insurance Company. And that's kind of what piqued my interest into wanting to learn more about you know, what happens behind the scenes? How do these companies uh, take money from investors? What does that look like? How do they value them? So that's where my gears really started to turn and, and wanting to jump to learn more about that. So during COVID, I parted ways and went off to do my MBA overseas in Tel Aviv in a program that focused on entrepreneurship and innovation. And, you know, Tel Aviv's the startup nation in the world. So it was a great opportunity to immerse myself in the innovation ecosystem and to surround myself with extremely bright minds. I had an opportunity to land an internship during that time at our crowd, who's the most active investor in, in Tel Aviv. And that was my first real experience working at a venture fund where I helped them with, you know, fintech research, understanding how the process works and really just, you know, diving into the, to the industry full steam. And once I completed the program, I kind of leveraged all the experience that I learned from the MBA and from that internship. And landed at Impression Ventures, where I've been today for the last two years. Amazing. It's always interesting to me when people get into the startup world and go on the VC or like supporting the entrepreneurship side of things. I'm curious, coming, I'm sure you are surrounded by a lot of entrepreneurship founders, startups. How did you know to navigate more on the VC side versus going on the founder side or a startup side and what are your thoughts about these two different roads you can go down? Yeah, yeah, totally. Great question. Honestly, I, I've always been very entrepreneurial minded at heart. I think I'm just naturally always very curious about many things and always thinking about unique ideas and what gets me excited. And I think there's no one path. You know, I've seen people that are coming from a science background or are doctors and make for unbelievable investors when it comes to call it med tech because they have such deep expertise to really help add value to, to funds that are investing in that space. And I think, you know, bringing it into this seat that I'm in now, I worked at a fintech. It was an insurance technology business. And yeah. that's kind of where a lot of my knowledge and expertise lied and just got me very interested in wanting to learn more about, you know, how to identify really strong investment opportunities, whether in insurance or fintech. And I think it really makes for a awesome investment experience when you have some significant operational uh, experience. You know, when you've been at an early stage startup from the ground up, watched it build to 20, 50, over 100 employees, 
you know, you're putting out fires all the time. Uh, you're working collaboratively with a team. I think once you've been through those experiences, it makes for a lot more valuable advice that you can give to founders and prospective founders when you're sitting on the investment side of things. But yeah. I've also met investors who just come from a banking background and really understand the capital markets world, you know, really understand what M&A transactions look like and how to analyze various opportunities. And they make for unbelievable investors as well. So I think we're kind of in this environment now where there's no one path to what makes or defines a great investor. You know, you see people all the time that just start little side hustles. They turn into unbelievable businesses, they sell, and then they go and launch their own little fund, right? So yeah, that's kind of... It's um, such a different world from what I know. And I it's so interesting to have the conversations with VCs because especially when I was doing my MBA and starting to learn about the world of business, it felt like such a foreign idea to go into and to have that as the role. Like in my head, it feels like, I don't know, like billionaires and Mark Cubans of the world. But the more that I'm like having these types of conversations, you realize that there's really a range of who the investors are looking to invest in, the type of companies, like even to your point that you guys are focused on fintech or more, you know, the back end of a business. And there's such a range of what a VC can focus on. So with impressions beyond the fintech side of it, what what are the types of businesses that you guys are looking for and what kind of piques your interest when you see, oh, this might be an interesting uh, opportunity for us? Yeah, 100%. Great question. I would say, you know, speaking specifically about the current role at Impression Ventures, we look for early stage fintech businesses that have, you know, kind of three criteria checked, I would say. The first thing is you've just launched your MVP or you've got that first product live in market. You've got your first few customers in place, perhaps some pilots, some partnerships. And the last thing I would say, and this is a really important piece because I think this kind of leads into not only the differentiator at Impression Ventures, but I think just in this you know conversation today of how do venture funds differentiate, the last point being we look for a significant differentiation in terms of the opportunity, whether it's respect to the technology, to the founding team, to the business model. So those are kind of like the three core things that initially check our boxes to look further at an opportunity. So again, early stage investors, predominantly I'd say seed focused. Yeah. And generally we come in with a pretty sizable check to you know lead the round and, and partner with the founders to help bring their vision to life and help them achieve every milestone along the way. So for us, you know, revenue generation isn't so important. We just want to see that that product is live in market. It's got like a little hint of early traction. And then that's where we like to come in to kind of solidify that product market fit and call it, you know, put some fuel on the fire with our capital injection and strategic network and support to, you know, help these founders really bring their their bold visions to life. With the uh, two questions coming, one's a little bit on the selfish side, like marketing and getting that early traction. So I'll save that for a second. But on the the relationship side with the founder, how important is the founder in that equation. Like you're not really looking at revenue, you're looking at MVP, probably product market fit, clear target audience, that type of stuff. But if you see a founder who is like their culture fit with your fund important as well. Yeah, yeah, totally. Look, I think anyone who's an early stage investor, the biggest thing you're looking for is founder fit. 
One thing that I think is really important to consider is does the founder have domain expertise? So do they come from 10, 15 years in banking or do they have entrepreneurial expertise? Maybe they're prior founders, maybe they've had a couple exits under their belt, or maybe they have the battle wounds of, you know, having already been an, an entrepreneur previously. So I think it's important to acknowledge that everything we do starts with the founding team. We always joke, it's, you know, I'm sure you hear this all the time. It's, it really is like a marriage, right? You are going to be partnered with someone for 10 years. And I think it's a really important decision to decide who you want to partner with, not only to see if these are founders that fit with the investors sort of mandate in the way that they operate. But I think the reverse is also really important, right? From a founder's perspective, are these, is, is this an investment team that can add value to my business and how? Who are their limited partners in terms of their investors and how can we leverage their you know, network and expertise? So yeah, all in all, founding team is a, is a huge component. We really get to know the founding team and our process. And that's why we're not you know, the kind of fun to cut a check next week or you know, in two weeks. We really like to build the relationship and make sure that we can help and, and we can be a valuable partner to this business because you know, again, we're a very hands-on fund. So we only invest in two to three businesses a year. And that allows us to really dive in deep to actually be a set of partners for these founders. And we meet with them weekly or biweekly, and we're going to be engaging and in your face on a regular basis, right? It's a very crucial yes, point. Founders have to like want that very hands-on because sometimes they're like, just give me the money and the connection, exactly. sure, but walk away. But if you're getting a lot of in-the-moment guidance, that's a totally different 100%. relationship. Yeah, that's a great point. And we always make that clear as well. And obviously today I'm here and I'm speaking based on the experience that I have in Impression Ventures, but this is a, a mandate that really aligns with me as a, as a human, because on a personal level, you know, at the core, I'm a relationship person. I love meeting people similarly to how we met, just a, a LinkedIn conversation. Yeah. You know, I think that I love the idea of actually being able to help people. And there's so many different strategies to being an investor. You can be a spray and pray investor that invests in 15, 20 plus companies a year. And maybe these founders just want money and off they go. They want to continue building. But I love the approach of being able to not only invest and partner with founders, but to actually be able to work with them day in and day out, support them, help them with what's keeping them up at night and really get to know them and, and, and help them build out their grand vision. What's, what is your role? I guess we didn't really get into that, like your role specifically in that whole journey from identifying uh, a potential opportunity to investing, to helping them grow over the 10 years or whatever it may be? Yeah, yeah. My role as an analyst is really to primarily source startups for uh, the fund. So on a regular basis, I'm engaging with founders, taking pitches from them, um, giving feedback, asking a lot of questions to better understand the business and then sort of bringing that back to the team internally where we assess every single opportunity on an equal playing field and decide if it's an opportunity we should progress in our process with or if maybe, you know, it's too early for us or it's too late or perhaps they're building in a competitive space. So that's kind of step one or I should say phase one of the job, but the responsibilities are are pretty extensive and and and, and I think that's one of the best parts about the job where no two days are the same. Uh, a large part of the role as well is supporting our portfolio companies and jumping in, helping them with ad hoc projects, tasks, hiring. Again, we meet with our founders weekly or biweekly. So I'm actively in those calls, helping strategize and think more around how do we get to product market fit? How do we solidify this go-to-market strategy or sales strategy? And 
what development features are core in order for us to get there right now. So a lot of time is spent with portfolio companies. And then I'd say the last facet of the role is supporting and, and leveraging our limited partners or the investors into our funds. So we do a lot of you know reporting with them. We connect them as much and as best as we can with our portfolio companies so that they can be actively involved and they can leverage their expertise and knowledge. And even when we're prospecting and looking at an opportunity, um, one of the greatest things we can do is chat with our investors into our fund to leverage their expertise and see what they think about the opportunity. You know, if we're looking at a lending business, why not chat with a limited partner that's day in, day out in that business, really understands the industry and, and kind of leverage their expertise? Maybe this is a newbie question, but what is the um, relationship of bringing it? Because I think it's obvious, although difficult, how you're going about getting the founder side of it and bringing in potentially new businesses. But what about the other side of getting the funds in? Like, how are you guys finding people to actually invest in the fund? Or mm-hmm. what does, how does that yeah, work? Yeah, yeah. Great, great question. So, you know, this fund, Impression Ventures, has been around, or this firm has been around since 2013. So we're on our yeah. fourth fund now. And honestly, it's pretty admirable to see that a lot of the investors from day one have been supporting us along this journey, right? So all the way up to fund four, it's been a lot of the same people, a lot of the same names, but of course, along the way, you're adding new investors as well. And, you know, the same way that a, that a founder is out there trying to raise money, it's very similar for VC funds who are approaching their friends and family, their network, just the same way that a founder would in the early days. And of course, yeah. over time, that grows to being institutions and things like that, if you're fortunate enough. So the limited partner base, that impression is actually split among our general partners themselves, plus their friends, family, and network, plus a whole wide array of other strategic high net worth individuals and experts, all the way up to two of the large Canadian banks in an insurance company. So yeah, I would say that process is, you know, I think when you have a reputation, it makes it a lot easier. But in terms of the environment we're in now, it, it obviously is a little bit more difficult asking people to invest their money, which might, you know, not result in anything after an eight to 10 year period, right? So I think people have to be understanding of that risk. But yeah, that's sort of how that process works. Couple of questions. So I guess with the, um, I know it was was a bit ago, but with SVB collapse, does that, have you found that that has put more hesitation in people investing and has that shaken things up a bit is, is one of the questions. And then the other side of it, with only investing in two to three companies a year, there's a lot more hands-on and support. So maybe the success rate has to be higher than the spray and pray strategy, but it also perhaps comes with more risk. So with a few moving pieces, and I guess a bit of a differentiation from your from impressions on having just two to three a year, what is that? Yeah, awesome. I'll, I'll tackle the first part of that question. Okay. I think, you know, without getting too technical, I think the SVB situation, traditional banks hide away from sometimes. It does suck to see what what has transpired as a result. But I think, look, we were in an environment of rising interest rates, high inflation. I think there was some treasury management and risk management foreshadowing that maybe was was lacking at the time. And I think what has really resulted in this environment that we're in now is one of the biggest things that's come out of this is I think the need for diversification. You know, I think a lot of startups had their funds stuck and trapped and were worried about what was going to happen. What are the implications? Can we make payroll? How do we access our deposits? Things like that. And I think now what you're seeing, and I've heard this from a lot of investor peers, is a lot of funds have started to 
advise their founders to, you know, diversify their deposits across different banks so that in the event something like this happens, at least they're not stuck with one financial institution, right? So the ability to have your money held with different depositing institutions and hopefully not be too at risk with, you know, that FDIC insurance. But again, it, it's difficult because startups often raise millions of dollars and that, that insurance only covers you for about 250000 So yeah, I think that was kind of like the last straw that broke the camel's back kind of thing into the larger environment that we're in now, which has resulted in founders sort of prioritizing access to capital more than the, the actual cost of that capital, let's say, if that makes sense. And I guess I can quickly touch on, on the second question, but look, I think when you make two to three investments a year, it really allows you to and, or, you know, any smaller amount, it really allows you to control as much of the investment risk as you can. Uh, I think being able to actually build alongside founders day in and day out and take your time in the process of investing to really understand the business, the market size, the potential, the technology, I think it, it, it allows for trying to de-risk as much of the unanswered questions as possible and, and really helping day in and day out to build these businesses versus when you're passively investing across, you know, 15, 20 opportunities and hoping that, you know, one of them kind of is a big hit that returns all of the, all, all of the fun plus, let's say. And again, no right recipe for success. You've right. seen success in all avenues. So I think it really just comes down to the type of investor that you want to be, right? It's also, yeah, like the success on, on both sides for the investor, I think. But I would imagine on the founder side, going to a company where there's a lot more handholding, if that's what you're looking for, might be give you a little bit more hope that there will be success in your venture. But what does success look like for you guys? Like when you're looking and let's say, okay, yes, we're going to make an investment in this company 10 years down the line, five years down the line, whatever it is, what are those metrics that you're looking to hit? Yeah. So look, I think any investor is going to say that success looks like you know, raising money at increased valuations every time you go out to raise money and not running out of money at all yeah. and, and seeing continued traction and growth. But I would say for us, I think it's really important to break it down into smaller bites. We always chat about how lack of focus kills the startups. And I think if you're trying to tackle everything under the sun at once, it makes it very difficult to hone in on what you're really good at and what the true value potential of the business is. So for us, you know, again, early stage investors, we come in at, at this very early point. And our first goal is how can we create stickiness with this product and establish product market fit, improve out our thesis internally, as well as obviously the thesis held by the founders, that this is a solution to a major problem, right? And I think at the early stages, really honing in on your target customer and proving that they are willing to adopt this technology and engage with it on a regular basis to prove the value of it relative to what else is out there in the market is kind of that first sign of, of success. And of course, then, you know, reaching that series A after that. Um, but I think it, from a founder's seat, you know, success should be not just perceived from a technical standpoint of how much money did we raise and at what valuation, you know, those are great from a high level, but I think it's also important to celebrate the small win. Raising that first, even before that, acquiring your first customer hiring your first few employees, raising your first angel round. And then of course, you know, establishing more of those formal metric based milestones that investors are looking for. But just to wrap up, you know, we don't really have core KPIs that we look at in terms of it being black and white, like you either fit this box or you don't. 
because a lot of the businesses that we invest in are pre-revenue, right? So we're just getting behind the thesis and vision that the business has and the understanding that this technology has the opportunity or ability to significantly disrupt a massive market, which hopefully will result in a business that's generating, call it $100 million in, in annual recurring revenue and growing by 100% every year, right? That would be very nice, yeah. <laughs> and okay, so you talked a bit about the like the target audiences and the first customer. And this is, I mean, I mentioned it way back, but you nicely brought it around back around for me. On the marketing side for these very early stage businesses, my guess is there's a lot more product focused individuals or engineers, developers um, within the business. And this is kind of like my sweet spot where I'm talking to startups is, okay, you have this solid product, but it can be the best product in the world. But if no one's seeing it, it really doesn't matter. So where do you see the best place or how do founders find the right place to start introducing marketing, investing in marketing to actually find that the right target audience, get that first sale or that first customer? And is that something you guys support with or do you expect that to already be part of the business? Yeah, yeah, that, that's a great question. And I think there's a lot of ways to, to answer it. But I think, you know, I, I, when I think about this, it's, look, you could, I'll, I'll take this away from like the impression ventures and fintech angle for a second, but sure. you, you can start an e-commerce business overnight. You can build a site pretty quickly, start drop shipping. But if you don't know how to acquire customers, then you don't have much to show for, right? right. I think we're in a world now where learning how to acquire customers in a profitable way through, you know, whatever are the strongest channels is an extremely important skill, whether you are a e-commerce founder or whether you're building a technology enabled business for the venture and private equity world of things. I think it's a really important skill to know for sure. And when we're looking at opportunities, we really hone in on how do you acquire customers. And, you know, obviously in the early days, you don't have too much insight into what the cost of acquisition looks like or cost per acquisition for a lot of these businesses looks like. But I think having an early insight into where are you finding these customers and how are you acquiring them is really important because then you can start to think about how much money is required to raise for this business to land our first, let's say, 1,000 or 2,000 customers. And then you can start to really model out like what this looks like from a more technical, you know, unit economics standpoint. But yeah, this is huge. I think it goes back to the first thing that I mentioned about, you know, we always look for domain expertise and entrepreneurial expertise. And I think that these are being able to acquire customers and understand marketing is a core pillar of building a business in today's world. So that's definitely a really big, you know, I would say pillar that we look for. But to your question, sort of in the sense of when do founders really start honing in on this? You know, sometimes there's a founding team that has an, a marketing expert on it. And other times it's just two scrappy founders that are trying to test with Facebook marketing, with Google marketing, maybe even TikTok, or maybe they have reliance on partnerships like with banks or with other organizations who are sort of acquiring customers for them. And then once they're sort of hitting a, you know, an inflection point and really want to double down on some of these channels, you know, we, we see that as a time where they start to hire in like a CMO or someone that can kind of offload those duties from the, the early stage founder. Yeah, it's almost like if you invest in the right person, it, and whether it's a CMO or even freelancers or support, then you'll 
probably get a lot better metrics and numbers to pre- then present to you know yourself than if you're just throwing some dollars at a few different tools and seeing what comes out of it, which is totally. what I see sometimes. And it's like, no, you yeah. could probably be a lot more strategic with where you're spending. Totally. And I, and I think, look, no, no investor is going to invest in a business that doesn't have some sort of you know, vision or idea around a strong go-to-market strategy that obviously yeah. includes like, how are you acquiring customers? How are you going to find them? Where are they located? What channels are you marketing or are you using for marketing? So I think that once you have a really good understanding of that, it gives you more insight into can this founding team achieve that on their own or will they eventually require some marketing expert? I think as a founder, there's a million and one decisions you're making. And that's part of the fun of entrepreneurship is you're wearing a million different hats. When you're thinking about how to get money or, you know, okay, we need to start really growing this business and scaling, I think getting some money is going to help us. How to make the assessment between like VCs, bootstrapping, what what are the other options out there? So maybe what are those other options out there? And then have you, do you ever give guidance to founders on how to navigate those different options? Yeah, yeah, for sure. That That's a great question. And look, I think it's important to distinguish between the business model and is it VCable? That's something we always talk about. Okay. Is this a what business that, that has, it's, does this business have the ability to scale to being, call it a billion dollar business, right? Okay. And obviously you can work backwards and break that down to see like, you know, how quickly are they scaling? How big is the market size? If they capture X percent of it, what does this look like from a revenue potential? But I think to your point, like some founders build really impressive traditional businesses that aren't required to raise money from venture capital funds or from private equity funds and can be backed by debt or perhaps just like an injection of their own capital. And I think it's important to kind of distinguish between the type of business that you're trying to build. I think when you hone in on talking now more in the tech world, the decision of bootstrapping, obviously, the earlier that you can fund this business on your own and, and delay taking capital in the early stages to build out your initial product and process and everything, the better, because then you don't have to worry about taking too much dilution at the early stages. But I think once you've sort of hit a point where you've launched your, you've put some money into the business, maybe you've raised some small money from friends and family, but now you're really looking to kind of put fuel on the fire and double down on the growth and, and get to that growth point faster than you would had you not raised capital. That's generally when a lot of founders go out to, to raise money and accelerate that process. But again, like not every business requires venture funding based on the models that they have, right? Like you could start a retail store tomorrow and that might not be the most VCable uh, opportunity as a lot of those investors are looking for significant you know, technology opportunities, but those make for great opportunities for private equity funds and things like that. Search funds also. What's that? A a search fund is when individuals raise money to then acquire a business and then take over operating it. That's where you see a lot of these like roll-up strategies, for example, when there's like a bunch of like you start off acquiring one business and then you take over it operate it, and then you start acquiring other businesses in the same industry underneath your kind of one umbrella. It's like, oh, I forget the name of it. There's that dentist. I, the yeah, like Dental Corp. Yeah. Dem- little yeah. plug for Dental Corp. <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> Very cool. Okay. So a company did family and friends around. They're getting the thing going and they're starting to think about coming to find impressions or or something like that, you know, and they want to, to really scale. It's VCable as you say, my new word. 
what is that initial conversation with you or how does that initial interaction happen and how can a founder set themselves up to to differentiate themselves than I'm sure the other hundred that are reaching out to you on a daily basis? Yeah, totally. Look, I think uh, I love this question because I think there's a lot of I think there's a stigma in the industry that VCs have such massive egos and every VC is the same. And it always makes me laugh because I came from the insurance industry where brokers are perceived in the same light and and then they're claimed to, to just be chasing their, you know, commission, yeah. uh, let's say. So so I'm used to kind of breaking down these barriers. And I always like to say that, listen, if you can really prove that you can add value and differentiate yourself as a broker, whether it's real estate, whether it's in insurance, or if it's as an investor, and make it clear to founders how you differentiate, I think that really separates yourselves from the rest of the pack. But in terms of the process, like you mentioned, you know, the pitch conversations are very standard from the start. Simple, casual conversation, two people talking, getting to know each other, because again, everything we do starts with the founding team. And generally, the founder opens up their pitch deck, walks me through it, just explains the business, tells me the problem that they're solving for, walks me through where they're at as a business now, how they acquire customers and what they're marketing. Um, strategies are. And then of course, they talk about the fundraise and how much money they're looking to raise and what the use of those funds will be. So that's generally call it your first call with any investor. And um, in that, the expertise that your team has, can you help them assess like, actually, I think you're, what you're looking to raise doesn't really work or like, is there a totally. collaboration even in that early phase? Yeah, 100%. And I think as you go through the process of looking deeper at a company, that's sort of where you start looking at their financial model and like what their plans are for growth. And like, you know, if it takes $5 million in in funding to reach, you know, your first call it million dollars in in revenue, and you're only asking to raise $2 million or something, then obviously we try and manage those gaps and things like that. And sometimes you see the opposite, right? Companies think they need $5 million to get to the product market fit in series A, but perhaps after looking at the model, they really only need about uh, 2 million after hiring, building out development and things like that. So yeah, we have those conversations all the time and bringing it full circle again. That's one of the things that I love about the job. We look at so many opportunities in a year. We look at about 700, 800 opportunities and obviously we're not investing in all of them, right? So a lot of the time, more of the conversations that I have are just providing advice or giving feedback and and of course learning a ton myself along the way because these founders know their businesses far better than I do and I'm just learning about it. Um it, it, and I think those conversations really help to build the relationships and show that you can add value in other areas. Like one thing that I love to do is if we pass on a company, I try and connect them to other investors in my network to still help them along the way. Maybe there's investors that play in spaces that we don't play in or maybe they invest earlier. And I think that's kind of the approach that I like to take for sure. Wow, seven to 800, that's truly like a couple a day that you're going through and thinking, is this the right call? Are you, do you ever get more of a personal question, but nervous that you're passing up or there's like FOMO that you're saying no to a company that maybe there's something really there? Because you're not spending, I imagine not spending days and days on every single one. There's just not enough time to do that. Totally. I think that's the name of the game, right? I think it's just about having a framework internally and a process and a mandate to analyze opportunities as best as you can. And I think that's when repetition is really important, right? Like once you've seen a lot, listen, fintech is massive. There's so many subsectors in it. But once you start to see a lot of payment businesses, a lot of insurance businesses, a lot of lending businesses, you kind of start to understand what models look identical. 
And then when one pops up, that seems a little bit more unique and, and differentiated from a technology standpoint or how they're acquiring customers or whatever it may be that separates this business. I think that's when kind of the light bulb goes off. But yeah, I think all the time you have it in the back of your mind of, is this something that I should look deeper at, right? And I think that's where leveraging the expertise of your team comes into handy, right? And having healthy conversations and, you know, call it your partner meetings or your investment committee meetings of breaking down, like, what is exciting about this opportunity or maybe what isn't? And, and maybe it's worth another call. Let's bring in more of the team members and see if maybe uh, another set of eyes sees this in a different way than I do, right? So I think, you know, this is why it's really important to bring different people around the table in, in a venture fund because people think differently and get excited by different things. And every single time we end up executing on a deal, it is a long process. It starts off with maybe one analyst being really excited and one partner being really excited and one partner being like, guys, there's nothing here. Like, what are you talking about? And it's a lot of convincing and talking to people and over time, continuing to dive deeper in, in research. And then eventually, you know, kind of everyone gets on the line and, or, or sorry, everyone gets aligned and, uh, you know, gets excited and sees the same potential that, that the founders have for their business, right? That's really exciting. I imagine like those conversations are very energizing and a lot of like, even p pitching on an idea of a business that isn't your own is it's a cool concept to hundred percent. And don't get me wrong. Business you know, you'd, be you'd be shocked how many times I bring a company to the table that I'm like, wow, this is cool. There's something here. And then I'm leveraging the expertise of our partners who have 20, 25 plus years experience as founders or as financial technology or service experts. And they're like, no, this is not cool. And this is why. And I think that's what makes for the most enlightening part of the job, just continuously learning and understanding what makes a, a deal interesting and why, yeah. right? How much of that do you pass on to the business if the founders know it's not for us and maybe it can be a successful business, but it's not just, it's not VCable or no, this just, this business isn't going to work out. And here's why, like it's hard. I'm sure it's hard because founders are very energetic and passionate. So you don't want to crush totally. them. Yeah, look, I think that's also one of the difficult parts of the job is that you're passing on more opportunities than you're investing yeah. in. I think it's about really being human about it and being personal about it. You know, don't just send these like generic cookie cutter emails like when you get rejected from a, you know, job and you get some classic auto response email. I think what, what I really try to do again, because everything I do is relationship oriented and that's kind of at the core of what I'm trying to do here is, is you know, help people. If there's feedback internally, we're always as candid and transparent as we can be. And it's not so that we can, you know, harp on a business, but it's so that we can maybe provide, again, free advice that take it if you want or don't take it. And it's kind of just our take on how we're seeing the opportunity and maybe other investors see it in a different light. But I think the more feedback you can provide, you know, the better, right? Everyone needs feedback to, to improve, whether it's me and my job or you yourself or you're a founder and in chatting with, you know, hundreds of investors, they're all going to have different opinions. So yeah, it's definitely trying to be candid and, and transparent as best as possible. And, you know, there's pushback. Sometimes I have people write me back and try and rebuttal and things like that. And I think they just make for healthy dialogues. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. I know we're, we're getting to the end. So I have a few questions that I like to end on. You covered one of them, which was, there's always myths when you get into entrepreneurship as a founder or as a VC. I know you talked about the image that people have of VCs and like, I mean, me, like I have yeah, yeah. in my head, you feel like they're this thing that's just so far away and untouchable. But what are, because you're interacting with so many founders on a daily basis, what are some of those myths 
that you see coming through that you would want to just dispel for all founders? Yeah, for sure. Look, I think kind of on the same point of that first one you mentioned, I think there's a lot more, there's a lot like, like founders shouldn't be scared to approach VCs and see it as some like spooky thing and you have to be perfect. You know, I think it's, it's a process of investing in a business, right? It requires a lot of conversations, a lot of getting to know one another. I think one of the biggest things is that a lot of people don't see the value. Uh, it's always looked at like an investor is just thinking, why should I invest in you? And I think if you flip the coin and think about it as this is why you should partner with us and take more of a human and personal and relationship-based approach, I have found that that bodes, not only, does it, not only is it more aligned with, again, the way that I carry myself and I just think that it makes for a lot more of a relaxed, casual conversation, right? VCs should do a better job of trying to also sell founders on the value that they bring. Because again, there's so many investors out there that have lots of money to, to deploy, but why are, this is why we're the best partner for you, we think, based on the day-to-day support that we provide or based on our you know network of investors and whatever it might be, right? So I think that's one of the things that should be taken into consideration as well. And that's the approach that I like to take. But I'm trying to think of other myths. I mean, yeah, other than this reputation and and ego thing that I think requires a little bit of a massaging. Is there anything on the founder side? Like one one of the other conversations was it has to be like 24-7. You have to give up your entire life. Everything has to be dedicated to your business. And, and in, in her case, she was like, that's just not true. You have to prioritize and you're going to miss out on things if you really want your business to grow. I thought that was another interesting one because I think founders do feel every hour you're not spending on your business is an hour it's not going to grow in the way you want. So that's like a really hard thing to deal with. So I don't know if, if that sparks anything for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, the journey of being an entrepreneur is one of the most grueling and difficult journeys someone can take. And I think it also has the opportunity to be one of the most rewarding, right? And I think, look, the way we approach it is we will never give up on a business and we will be dedicating 120% of our time to these founding teams to build this business until the founder calls it quits. Obviously, you know, you can't build a tech business as a part-time job. That's why most people, when their side hustle starts to become bigger, they go and take that leap of faith. I'm of the belief that, look, work-life balance, huge. Every hour you're not spent on your business, is that a sacrifice that you could be building something bigger or getting to where you want faster? Yeah, perhaps, but not sleeping, not spending time with family and friends and not doing the things that you love will also probably create worse. It'll have heavier implications, right? So I think it's all about being well-rounded, being balanced. But at the end of the day, we're going to invest in people that are so passionate about solving this problem and are willing to do whatever it takes to do so, but of course not at the expense of family, health, and, and other things that are super important to anyone's life, right? Okay, amazing. Those are two really strong ones. Lastly, as you know, it's called How I Became. And I think everyone has their own journey and we've talked about, I mean, you're so passionate about what you're doing. You're helping so many founders. I think it's founders that you're investing in or not. And you haven't been at impressions for all that long, right? And you've already made a huge impact. So with where you are today and in the podcast, if you were going to say how I became dot, 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 what would you name your episode? Oh, I wish this interview was like 40 years from now. (laughs) We'll do it again if I'm I'm still here. 
hopefully my answer is a lot different. But honestly, look, I, I'm of the belief that everything I've done to date in my career, in my life has kind of led me to where I am. So I wouldn't say that this is how I've became X or, or whatever. I, I look at it more, you know, I have to think a lot about this one, but I, I think I would say, you know, how I became who I'm becoming, if, if that makes sense. Oh, I, think, I love that. I think everything I've done in my life has taken me to this moment and there's so much more to, to learn and there's so much more I want to do. And I hold myself to very high standards. And I think when you work with founders day in and day out, that only rubs off even more. So yeah, I, I think I would leave it at that. I think, you know, ask me again in 30 years and then, and we'll see. But uh, yeah, how I became who I'm becoming. That's a, a really, and it, I love that because I think even founders who are in the, like everyone's in the process, right? I, even in 30 years, you're still going to be working on whoever you're becoming. So I think that's a, a great name for it. That's everything. I want to see if there's anything, like if you want to share impressions and, or, a, or a link or a way for potential founders to reach out to you, not to yeah. like, you, totally. But, um, I mean, yeah, look, if it's uh, investment related and has to do with pitching impression or whatnot, feel free to LinkedIn message me or, you know, submit a, a pitch on our website. But honestly, like my DMs are open for anything. I love just meeting new people chatting. Maybe there's a way we can learn from one another. You know, maybe we have friends in common, you know, whatever it might be. Always happy to connect and just build my network and, and meet new people. I think it life's too short and you know, the more the merrier kind of thing. And they'll help you figure out who you're becoming. So it'll exactly. all work out. Exactly. Max, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was a solid conversation. I learned a lot. I really appreciate uh, your time today. Absolutely. Had a blast and um, looking forward to, to listening to many other guests that you have on. Absolutely. How I Became a Blue Mex Podcast is hosted by Kelly Yuffet and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. For more How I Became content, subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit bluemex.io to join us on Discord.